and welcome to Flexibility Focus, the podcast where we dive deep into the science of flexibility. I'm your host, Dan Van Zandt, and in today's episode, I'm very excited to bring you an exclusive interview with Dr. Sandro Freitas, who has performed some of the most important research into stretching and flexibility of the last decade. My primary goal with the Flexibility Research Platform, which includes this podcast, is to bring you the highest quality information from the frontiers of research. And that includes providing a platform for prominent voices in the scientific and research fields. If you're listening to this on an audio only platform, please be aware that Dr. Freitas was very kind to prepare some informational slides for this conversation, which you can see if you watch the full video version on YouTube. I highly recommend that you do because they do help to better illustrate some of the concepts that we discussed. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed hosting it. Once again, my thanks go to Dr. Freitas for sharing his insights and thoughts with us. And if you have any questions, you can leave a comment on YouTube or you can send me an email at dan at flexibilityresearch.com. I also recommend that you follow Dr. Freitas on social media. You'll be able to see his usernames on the slides during the video presentation but he's at Dr. Sandro Freitas on Instagram, Sandro Freitas Official on Facebook, and Sandro10 Freitas on Twitter. Enjoy the show. Uh, Sandro, welcome to the Flexibility Focus podcast. It's, uh, it's an honor to have you on. Um, would, for the benefit of our audience, could you tell us a bit about yourself, your academic background and interests, and how you became involved in your research? Yes. So first of all, uh, thank you, Dan, for the invitation. I'm very happy to to give this uh, have this conversation with you and share some of my thoughts and also some of findings of my research. So I was born in March in '84, so 37 years old. Uh, when I was young, I was a practitioner of different sports modalities, different types of martial arts. And most of the time, between eight and 14 years old, I practice uh, football. And since I, since my 14, the age of 14, I, I practice capoeira, the Brazilian martial oh. arts. So, and in 2007, I got my bachelor degrees in sports science in minor of exercise and health. I did my bachelor degree between Portugal and United States of America. Oh. So I went to the the laboratory of Dr. Willem Kramer. So it's a strength and power laboratory. So mm. I spent there uh, six months. Uh, I came back to Portugal. I launched my own company that has several brands, uh, some concerning education and some concerning training athletes, uh, which I give consultant to, to different clubs and federations and also athletes. In 2009, I was invited as assistant professor for the Faculty of Human Kinetics, University of Lisbon. And I started teaching there and also started doing my PhD, uh, which was founded by the Portuguese Scientific Foundation. <laughs> and in 2014, I completed my PhD in biomechanics with the title Flexibility and Stretching Physiology, Responses and Adaptations to Different Stretching Intensities. In 2015, uh, I became auxiliary professor of Faculty of Human Kinetics. And today uh, I teach anatomy, physiology, kinesiology, neuromuscular function, training methodology. And I lead research uh, concerning performance and health in sports athletes. So, and you asked also why I became interested in, um, in stretching. 
-hmm. When I was, uh, I'm a, a very stretch, uh, uh, flexible guy. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I use the flexibility in different sports, which mm -hmm. I have been practiced. But when I was in the United States, uh, I got interested to compare and I, I did a small study. I never published that, but yeah. <laughs> I, I did a small study which uh, I quantify flexibility profile of baseball athletes mm -hmm. compared to football athletes. Because uh, and I know that they have specific flexibility profiles on their dominant joint. So mm -hmm. and one group was controlled for each other, so it was a nice study. But when I looked to literature, I found that there's very few literature about, uh, concerning stretching and flexibility. Mm. And uh, worldwide, in both sports and rehabilitation context, stretching is performance. Mm -hmm. No matter if it is correctly or not, but it is done. So it is, there is a, a lot of knowledge uh, concerning stretching and flexibility. So uh, I thought it was relevant to, uh, to people to know more about that. So yeah. I started doing research uh, about stretching flexibility. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Um, just speaking about the research, I think very few people, um, both in and outside the health and fitness industry, appreciate the uh, amount of time and effort that goes into conducting a robust research study. So could you tell us a little bit from your experience about what conducting research is actually like, some of the things you have to consider, like the time and the cost involved? How difficult is it to, to do research? Yeah, thanks for the question. You, 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 you touched the point. <laughs> Doing good research is not easy. It takes time. It involves a lot of costs. And sometimes to get uh, conclusions that Maybe it's not practical, but give us new direction uh, to know what is the truth about the facts. So the first big step, I, didn't hear, I have here a small PowerPoint, which I mm -hmm. will share. Um, and uh, I pointed seven, seven steps that are very important when we think about research, about good research. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is to, to have a plan. We have to make the plan, and, uh, and the first step when we think the plan is to think the problem. And a lot of research, they they collect data, they do a lot of things, but the problem they do not think properly. And we take a lot of time to have to to, to think the problem. Then we have to search literature to to see what is going on uh, about the topic. We have to define the research question. We have to define the the, the design and methods of the study, and we have to estimate time and costs to implement the study. Mm -hmm. The second step is to get authorization from ethics. Ethics, it's very important. When you have ethics, you increase the quality of your research, which means that you will have higher prob probability to, to know the truth, to, to get good findings. The first step, the third step is to get resources, not just equipments. Uh, nowadays, you need hardware, you need software, but you also need brain aware <laughs> to, to research. Yeah. So we have to get those res, uh, resources to implement. The first step is to implement. Um, and uh, we do reliability testing just to see if everything is okay. We collect the data. So it takes a lot of time and energy. The, the, five step is, uh, the fifth step is to analyze data. And we have to sometimes the data we collect is huge and we have to have specific uh, automatic routines to process 
the data. So we have to develop the scripts for them. The sixth step is to produce the scientific outcomes as manuscripts in that are published in scientific journals, but also go to the Congress, make infographics, has the opportunity as this to, to, to share the, the, the research. Mm -hmm. And the seventh step, the, the last step is to disseminate. So, and the dissemination is a scientific step of research. So, I uh, would like to, so it evolves a lot in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think that's just going to give people a, a greater appreciation for what the research actually involves, because one of the things I encounter with people in the health and fitness industry is just that they think you can just go out, perform research and then publish it in a peer reviewed journal six months later. But it, it's not a short process at all. And like you've seen, it's like, or like you just shared with us, it's a very in-depth and it can be a costly process as well. It's okay. But uh, people should keep in mind that research is slow mm. to gather. So when I start the, the, the scientific process and when I, I go, I, I get the dissemination step, I have sometimes three, four years just to, just to answer a very small uh, uh, research question. Yes. So, and uh, so audience sh should be aware that scientists most of their research they do not publish mm. they have those information sometimes it's very they are very important for community but for a lot of reasons also because of editorial industry uh, issues mm. uh, we don't have a possibility to, to disseminate so uh, situation as this like your podcast are very important because they mm. give the opportunity to share uh, like research that is on the desk <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um just going back to the research there have been um a few studies uh which have demonstrated changes in say tissue length following stretching uh you published one yourself in i think it was 2015 um looking at uh i think it was bicep femoris length following stretching um but we also have a large number of studies that have demonstrated no change in say tissue length and that suggests that changes following stretching occur mostly at the sensory level um, so we have this now sensory theory which i think is what most people consider to be the main mechanism for adaptations following stretching but what do you think are some of the factors that cause changes to occur beyond just the sensory level um, do you think factors like intensity uh, stretching duration and the length of the stretching program are important here do you think that's what the difference might be Yes, I would define two, two main factors. It's the type of stimulus and the time. Mm -hmm. Most of studies are in very short time interventions. So they have eight weeks, 12 weeks maximum. Uh, and they don't see adaptations because the time is not enough. But when you compare very flexible guys with non-flexible, you see structural and mechanical difference between the populations. So if you go to the limits, you can see difference. So, which means that probably you need much more time to see structural adaptation. But you, if you want to see structural adaptations in a shorter time, you must account for the type of stimulus and between the, the, the variables, the training variables that you have to, to, to change, uh, like the duration, uh, density, density, uh, a lot of variables. 
intensity, I would say that is the key to have structural variables. So I had published some years ago uh, a paper which I know I would say that was the research get, that gave me the the biggest uh, 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 time to implement. It was very difficult to do this term, very complex. Uh, that has a simple outcome, like a, a tool to quantify stretching intensity based on the individual's perception. So there is a, a new definition concerning intensity with this scale, which means that you have a sub-maximal and a super-maximal intensity domain. For those who are not aware, like when you stretch and you go to the maximum as you can, but suppose that's, let's say that's it's the, the threshold, uh, the pain threshold, and you go, if you, you, do, you keep your stretch with some duration or you stretch sometimes, you will increase the range of motion. So, which means that you will be uh, stretching with the intensity higher than maximal. So you are in a super maximal domain. But depending on how you, you manipulate the variables, you can have a higher level of super maximal intensity or a lower uh, uh, magnitude of super maximal intensity. And for instance, if you use a protocol without rest intervals, uh, just stretch and then wait some, 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 uh, some seconds and then stretch again, and then, you, but always respecting your pain threshold, you will have much higher uh, increase in range of motion compared of doing stretch, I rest, stretch and rest. So this methodological, very simple aspect can make the difference between a higher intensity and lower intensity. And this scale, which has a visual component, which has a numeric component, but also a descriptive, a descriptive component that is in Portuguese, but we can translate to English if needed, <laughs> uh, follows the mechanical response with stretching. So I have here data from one individual, which he performed a rest interval protocol. So it was a static stretching, 90 seconds each repetition with 30 seconds rest between repetitions. And that at right, it was the, the maximum number of uh, repetitions he could allow without resting between repetitions. The same duration, 19 seconds for each repetition. As you can see, the values of the scale, they really follow the, the change in both maximum row angle and the peak torque, the resistance to stretch. So, which means that the perception of individuals, maybe with the help of these scales, can easily say where they are concerning their intensity. And I had, like my PhD was concerned the, the, the effects of stretching intensity. And I know that uh, not uh, with the studies that have been conducted, that the intensity is critical when you want to have adaptation. For instance, we know that for instance, to increase fascicles length of muscles, uh, if you do eccentric exercise, they are much more effective in increasing fascicle length. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is because the tension you get with the muscle contraction is much higher than by the stretching. So the tension is much lower. But if you have methodological procedures to increase the intensity of the stretching, you can increase the tension to the tissues and that can uh, stimulate longitudinal 
importer fee, which means that the fascicles we will get longer. That was uh, that was I noted in the paper published in 2015, which I have used a very uh, uh, protocol to stretch with a very high intensity. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that, and uh, I have actually shared that uh, stretching uh, intensity scale before on my. Uh, on my Instagram, um, but what I'll do is I'll make a link to that available um, on, say, YouTube and also in the show notes on on the website. So, uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that. But that's very key points there. Um, very key points. I think a lot of the times in in stretching studies, uh, many of them don't even mention stretching intensity. But when we prescribe stretching as a trainer or a coach, it's one of the main variables that we use. So, very very important point there. Um, in uh, last year in 2020, you published, I think was the first study that demonstrated that peripheral nerves can adapt to long-term mechanical loading. Could you tell us more about that study and what the implications of that might mean for physical training and or rehabilitation? Okay, thank you then for the question. I will share again my screen. The merit of that study was from Ricardo Andrade, which was the PhD student at the time, nowadays he is on Australia uh, studying uh, the, the relation between uh, diabetes and cancer with uh, neurochemical properties. But at that time, he ran a study, which I was advisor together with Antoine of Dick, uh, he in which he wanted to know uh, the chronic change between a nerve stretch intervention and a muscle stretch intervention. So we got 60 subjects, 60 individuals, and divided in three groups, uh, some for neural stretch, some for muscle stretch, and some for control. So the intervention lasted 12 weeks, five times a week, two exercises for each condition, and five repetitions of 45 seconds for, per exercise. So, so these are the exercises we have used. Mm -hmm. We should put it that the, we, we tested the flexibility at, at the ankle, uh, and we did intervention for sciatic nerve without moving, without uh, mobilizing the ankle, which means that the muscles were not stretched on, on, on the individuals that performed the nerve stretch. So that's what, what we found. We found that both interventions increased the joint range of motion, but only the nerve stretching increased range of motion in positions where the nerves are being stretched. As you can see on the right, when we are seated, you, we stretch the, the septic nerve mm -hmm. and you can see that only the, the, the stretching that targets the, the, the nerves can increase range of motion. We also noted that muscle stretching was able to decrease the joint resistance to stretch, but not uh, sciatic nerve. So, which means that you, you can keep the stiffness of the joint and increase range of motion without affecting the, the joint mechanical profile and only nerve stretching was able to decrease the nerve stiffness. So, which means that we can be very specific to the structures that will want to decrease the stiffness uh, and increase range of motion without the, uh, affecting uh, muscle properties. But here's the most interesting things. It's all plotted in, in this graph. So, what we have here we have here the change in joint dorsiflexion range of motion increase. So the difference between the, pole, the pre and the post in the x-axis and the y-axis, we have the difference in the sciatic nerve 
stiffness. Mm. Those who got higher increases, the higher magnitude of range of motion increase at the ankle were those who got higher degrees of nerve stiffness. So what it means that if you do an intervention uh, uh, targeting peripheral nerve structures, and if you have very large degrees uh, in, uh, in their stiffness, you will have a higher probability to have much higher increase in your range of motion. Mm -hmm. But you should note that the, 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 this relation was noted in, in a position where sciatic nerve influences range of motion. So he stretched. So the, the practical application is that if you want to increase flexibility in positions where nerves are being stretched, you have to use exercise for nerves to have the, the adaptations. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, so I think this is uh, that's a very important consideration going forwards because when you read many textbooks on on stretching and all they talk about really is the muscle and maybe the fascia and tendon, there's really no consideration given to the nerve structures except maybe in physical therapy where they they do neuro uh, neurodynamics or nerve gliding and flossing. But I think that's uh, I think that's going to be a really interesting area to look forward to in the future um you know how nerves actually adapt so uh yeah fantastic to do that one i really enjoyed reading that and again i'll, I'll put a, a link to that study in the in the youtube channel and also the show notes um just following on from our discussion then about nerve stiffness when people talk about tissue stiffness they tend to discuss it as though stiffness is uniform throughout an entire muscle. So it's the same from one attachment to the other. But you've published a study this year that demonstrated um, heterogeneity in the active stiffness of the long head of the biceps femoris. Could you uh, talk a bit about that study and what the implications uh, of the findings mean for future research? Yes, so uh, I must say that in the last years, I have dedicated myself to investigate injuries, mm -hmm. so especially uh, muscle injuries, and I'm looking to the hamstring because in running related sports, that's what we have, we have more. So more, a lot of hamstring injuries mm -hmm. in rugby, in football, and some running sprint related sports. So we published a, a recent study showing that. So what, what is the premise that is, uh, uh, exists in literature is that when we calculate the stiffness of the muscle, we assume that the stiffness is equal along their length. And we have noted that is not. So this has implications concerning the exercise prescriptions, the injury prevention, and also methodological aspects of research. So when you look now to studies, you say, okay, but which portion of the muscle you have measured the stiffness? So I can compare, for instance, between studies. So here's the things. You can see what we did, with, we, we asked the individuals to make a, just a very simple thing, a, a knee flexors contractions, and we use a technique called ultrasound-based sheep wave elastography. And we, we quantify the stiffness during the isometric contraction in the distal portion of bicep femurs in the proximal portion of bicep femurs. 
And we asked them to make two types of contraction at 20% and 60% of their maximum. So here's what we found. We found that uh, in two different angles, like 15 degrees of inflection and 45, uh, we always found difference between the proximal uh, regions and the distal regions at different intensities. So, uh, which means that stiffness is not the same. For instance, concerning uh, injury prevention perspective, we know that um, the stiffness of biceps, the, the injuries, often target the proximal region of bicep femurs. And curiously, we know that, that the stiffness during contraction is lower, which means that the resistance that tissue gives to deformation is much lower, which might increase their vulnerability to have injury. Mm -hmm. We also, with this study, we also, uh, uh, in certain way, we, we say that we should have some uh, concerns concerning exercise because we, we know that the stiffness is heterogeneous, but still not published, but hopefully in the future I will, I will, we will publish that and show that the adaptations to exercise, they are also specific uh, of the tissue line. <laughs> so, which means that we can change the exercise type and make very specific uh, mechanical adaptations. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, that was that study in particular was a, um, a real eye-opener for me because uh, I have a biomechanics background as well, and I had assumed for a long time that stiffness was uniform throughout the entire length of the muscle. So it's, it's great to see this starting to get uh, evidenced in, in the research. So, yeah, very, very interesting study. Um, when it comes to uh, flexibility and stretching research, is there anything that you see that particularly frustrates you? For example, certain things that are maybe absent from the methodology or the way that results get interpreted. Um, is there any kind of errors that you see people making that you'd like them to, to maybe not make? <laughs> That's a nice question. Yeah. Uh, researchers always have frustrations. <laughs> frustrations. Yeah. Let's share the main frustration that I have. When you search in literature concerning Two things, the number of studies in the last 70 years mm -hmm. for stretching and for strength, you get this. Mm -hmm. So you have here on your left, the number of papers that you can search in PubMed with the word muscle stretching. Look into the right, look to the front <laughs> and the way that grows concerning muscle strength. So there is, not so much studies about stretching, and there is a lot of doubts and questions. And so uh, if stretching is important, and if it is practice, I think research has to increase about it. However, I have um, some things that specifically bother. For instance, in stretching flexibility studies, the first thing that bothers me is the care that scientists scientists, because they are responsible for dissemination, have with interpretation and especially dissemination. I will present you a very nice study, methodological well done, that was published by a Portuguese team also, which title is Strength Training versus Stretching for Improving Range of Motion. From a methodological point of view, 
the study is well done. I don't have access to data to, data to confirm, but for what is written, I can say it looks very well. And the aim was to see whether strength training was as effective as stretching to increase range of motion. And when we read uh, the, the, the manuscript, we get, I, I think readers will get the, the, the impression that you, you don't need to do the, the stretching. You can do only strengthening exercise and you will increase your range of motion as much as you do stretching. If you ask any athlete in the planet that did a split with their legs, only doing strength training, I want to meet him. <laughs> because Agreed. You, can, you can increase, like, your, if you do a warm-up, you also increase your range of motion. So, but the magnitude of the effects are small. So, this, the, uh, I think care should be taken to, to say uh, and to give uh, recommendations concerning what is effective or, or not and the, the meaning of those effectiveness. We know that the number of studies are very small, so they, they just selected 11 studies uh, and the, the, the intervention lasted, I think, the maximum eight, nine weeks. So it's, it's not too much. And the, the, also the, the sessions, the, the stretch interventions were not performing concerning very high, the, 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 the maximum increase of, of range of motion. So, like, as I said, uh, the study is well done. Mm -hmm. Care should be, uh, should be, we should have care with the interpretation of data mm -hmm. and the way that we disseminate the findings. Mm -hmm. The second, second thing is that most of stretching and flexibility research do not care stretching and flexibility purpose. We know that the, the amount of papers concerning stretching are very few concerning to strength, for instance, but most of them, they just care about the effects of stretching flexibility on force production, mm -hmm. defense. And I will say, if I make a strength intervention before a power activity, there is also a decrease in performance. Any activity that I do, do just before a power activity will always decrease the, the, the performance. Okay. And so that, that's a, uh, people are not attending the balance uh, and trying to examine the benefits of stretching flexibility can give. And third is the terminology that sometimes people that don't use it properly. Um, a few years ago, like I, I published a, a book like 12 years ago, and my first concern was to define the taxonomy, the, so the terminology of stretching and, and flexibility. And in Portuguese, we, for stretching, we, we say it alongamento, and flexibility, we say it flexibilidad. And in my uh, conception, and what is written from all books, like stretching concerns tissues, and flexibility concerns joints. And so there is no muscle flexibility. <laughs> so it's a, there's a joint flexibility you, you can have. So like mm -hmm. this is simple terms, but there is more compli complicated terms that yeah. sometimes people don't use it uh, properly. So these are the top three things that mm -hmm. matter. Yeah. Yeah, I actually concur with all of those. Um, it, it's interesting, you know, you, you provided the Afonso 
and colleagues study, you know, strength training versus stretching, because what I found, um, especially on social media, is that people who have an anti-stretching bias and prefer strength training have taken that study as proof that strength training is superior to stretching for improving range of motion. Um, it's like they haven't even read the study at all. Um, and, and now they're, they're trying to push this message that stretching is a waste of time. Weightlifting will give you all of the range of motion you need. But when you examine people doing <coughs> these things, they, they tend to have very poor flexibility themselves. Um, and like you say, you know, someone who can do the splits didn't get that way by lifting weights. They spent a lot of time, uh, a lot of time stretching. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite glad you, you brought that, uh, that study up. Um, the bit about terminology was really interesting as well, because I find um, a lot of my time is spent trying to help people understand the differences between, like you say, flexibility and stretching. Um, because I think the term that you and I would probably use with, with a biomechanics background is tissue extensibility for, for tissue lengthening and tissue, uh, tissue stretching. And that flexibility, when you read most studies, refers to the range of motion around a joint. So yeah, flexibility and stretching are not the same thing. Stretching is what we do to improve flexibility, but uh, a lot of people don't, uh, are not aware of that uh, difference in the in the terminology, um, but thank you for sharing sharing those those three points with us. I think they were very very uh, pertinent or very appropriate given how, uh, especially on social media, um, flexibility and stretching are coming in for a really rough time at the moment. Um, just to finish with, what do you think are some of the big questions that remain to be answered in the flexibility and stretching research? Okay, so your last question is difficult to answer because there's a lot of, of uh, uh, a lot of questions that we I would like to be answered. So, but I will elect uh, three. So here's my three, the top three research stretching flexibility questions. The first is concerning what are the genetic and histological factors underlying connective tissue mechanical properties and joint maximum range of motion capacity. So in the past, we were indicated that flexibility most dependent on muscles properties. Nowadays, we know that the influence of skeletal muscle to express range of motion is very low. So much more important are connective tissue, which also influence the structure of peripheral nerves. So I would say that we have connective tissue first, then peripheral nerve second, and then we can look at the, the influence of uh, muscle. But we don't, we, we don't know. We, we know that the, the mechanical properties of connective tissue, uh, which are, have a high uh, relation with uh, the flexibility of individuals, have different uh, mechanical properties. So some are more stiff, others are less. And it's still not clear what are the genetic, so the polymorphisms mm -hmm. and the structural items of connective tissues explaining the variance of connective tissue mechanical stiffness. Yeah. The second question is, what is the impact of chronic stretching on muscle tendon mechanical properties and performance. So, to my be the best of my knowledge, there is only one study from a Brazilian group, from Daniel Mudej, who have looked 
we did a, a, a systematic review examining the influence of chronic stretching on muscle force production. And he concluded that there is no negative effect, contrary to the acute effects of chronic stretching, and some types of muscle force production, especially those involving sh uh, stretch shortening cycle and involving uh, the dynamic activities, have, may have some benefits. So they show that there is an increase in performance on, on those activities. And one of the reasons could be the, the influence of static stretching on the hysteresis of tendons. Mm. For instance, we know that when we contract, the tendons are stretched, so they and 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 they, they recoil, which helps to the uh, production of joint torque. Yeah. But tendons are not a hundred percent efficient, which means that they lose energy. So there's, and the hysteresis is the difference between the uh, uh, energy that tendons absorb and then they, 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 get, they give when they recoil. And there is only one study from a Japanese team led by Kubo, who showed that static stretching decreases the hysteresis of tendons, which are benefit of benefit to the muscle force production especially in stretch shortening cycles. And the third question is, what is the most efficient, so effective and with less time approach to chronically increase joint maximum range of motion in two types of individuals, very stiff guys, which have normally lower range of motion and their response to stretching interventions are not so big and to non-stiff, so more compliant individuals which for the same time and uh, type of intervention, they have larger increase in joint range of motion. Yeah, I, I agree with all of those. I think uh, the, the genetic and histological uh, factors would be very, very interesting research. But um, yeah, I, I, I agree with point two as well, which is that most studies, or at least many stretching studies, only look at the acute effects and what the immediate impact on, on performance and force output is and not really giving much consideration to the long-term investment of stretching because, you know, you, like you say, you have a martial arts background, I do too, and it takes time to stretch and develop flexibility and there will be some long-term payoff, but uh, unfortunately, a lot of the, the research doesn't reflect that. Um, Sandro, thank you so much for your answers. That was really uh, insightful. Uh, conversation that is going to benefit many, many people and just bring more awareness to what the literature actually says uh, and the directions it's going in. Um, so uh, thank you for your time and um, hopefully get you on this podcast again sometime in the future. So uh, thank, thank you and uh, hopefully speak again soon. Okay, no, thank you then for the invitation. I'm happy to uh, accomplish my mission in dissemination uh, scientific research. Excellent. I'll see you later. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye.